0: I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford, a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I started self-work about four years ago in order to try to reach those of you who might already be very interested in psychological and emotional issues, to those of you who may have been recently diagnosed with depression or anxiety or having relationship problems and you're just looking for answers, but also to a third group, those of you who might never darken the door of a therapist but are just curious enough to listen to someone like me. So I'm glad you're here, all of you. Today's topic is called the Suck It Up episode. It's really about learning how to feel, but in a different way than I've ever talked about before. Most of you know that I've published a book recently about what I term perfectly hidden depression, and one of the traits of that syndrome is the inability to express painful emotion. Maybe you can talk about whatever is painful, like my best friend moved away last month, but if I provided you with a safe place and asked, so how are you doing? Your answer would still likely be, fine, I miss her, but the only thing you can count on is change. You stay in your head, and you don't even touch your heart. So today, we're going to be talking about that, how growing up as a child in an environment where painful emotions, or maybe much of any emotion, weren't allowed, how that may prevent you from learning how to feel emotion, or at least greatly reduce the diversity of emotions that you can feel or even know exist. And by the way, this episode was kind of weird in its synergy. I was listening to the podcast Invisibilia the other day, which I absolutely love, and they had a two-part series on emotions and the development of them that I found fascinating. That podcast mentioned Lisa Feldman Barrett. Interesting, I thought. Then I was looking at an article on emotions and words for them, and that author, a guy named Tim Lomas out of London, also mentioned Barrett. (laughs) So I had to look up Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett and her book, which I've ordered, called How Emotions Are Made. It's a new theory of what creates emotion. And we'll touch on what that theory might have to say about emotional pain not being felt and thus not expressed. We'll also mention the work of Dr. Lomas out of London and try to make sense out of why certain emotions are so hard for you to feel. The listener email today was created due to my sticking my foot in my mouth and saying something that simply wasn't correct. A listener who's also a therapist and has kindly shared this podcast with several of her clients was very disappointed in me for something I said in the most recent podcast, and she was absolutely right. So I want to set the record straight. I've already apologized to her privately, but I wanted to correct and publicly address my overly hasty words. And I thank her for approaching me very calmly about it. So today in this episode, sponsored by BetterHelp, we'll talk about the development of emotions and the interesting idea that if you don't learn an emotion, you may not even know it exists. I really don't remember what my parents taught me about feelings I rarely saw either of them cry, especially my mom. But I was never told not to cry myself. I remember being supported when I lost something or got hurt somehow in a relationship, and I was comforted. Every now and then I was told that I was feeling sorry for myself and that that wasn't a trait I wanted to develop. My brothers and I would fight and be sent to our rooms for doing so. Usually, my middle brother would hear my mom coming down the hall and go sit in a chair and look angelic like he'd been above it all. So me and my older brother actually would be punished, or at least that's the way I remember it. Now, I no longer have my oldest brother to back me up on that perception. I'm sure my middle brother would say, oh, that's not true. I've learned since being a therapist that I was very lucky about this particular dynamic, that I was comforted. I've heard over and over from all kinds of people that in their family, emotional pain was simply not allowed to be expressed. Any kind of pain, hurt, sadness, anger, fear. None of it. So I began wondering if you're consistently surrounded by people who don't allow you to feel that either you're derided or ridiculed for the expression of pain or told to suck it up, and you then begin to not feel those things anymore, do you even know certain emotions exist? Certainly, painful and traumatic experiences can be either hastily compartmentalized, which is a well known psychological construct. That's when painful memories are stuck way back into an emotional vault and locked away. Or your mind can actually dissociate from those experiences and your inner experience seems as if it didn't even happen, at least not to you. You dissociate the emotion from the experience. You separate it in a way. But what if you grew up in a family where no one talks about anything? No questions are asked about feelings. It's as if they don't exist. Not happy, not sad, nothing. There are no words for feelings offered. So some people are wondering then, can you feel an emotion that you don't have a concept of its existence? So I went looking in the research to try to find that out. Before we explore that, here's a message from BetterHelp, our sponsor, about a special offer they have just for you. When I was approached by BetterHelp now several months ago, COVID hadn't emerged, and I'd maybe conducted a handful of telehealth sessions, mostly when someone was sick and couldn't make it into the office. Now, five months later, I'm even more of a believer in telehealth. It took some getting used to, but actually, clients sometimes seem more relaxed. It fits better into their schedule, and although many have told me they miss seeing me in person, it's still been a very fulfilling relationship. I've even started new patients, and they've told me they had positive experiences, so we've never actually met in person. BetterHelp is rated the number one online therapy service that's available to you wherever you live. Confidential and highly personalized, it's much less expensive than normal talk therapy. You can text, have video chats, or just talk on the phone. You outline what you're looking for and BetterHelp suggests several therapist options for you. If you don't seem to find a way to connect with one, they'll ask you more about what you're looking for and then suggest others. I, of course, tried it out before I was going to recommend it to you. And the two therapists I had sessions with listened well and made great suggestions for me. And one said, actually, I might make myself. I talked about my own panic disorder and a very scary situation I'd been through. And they were caring and thoughtful. And I was amazed at how easy it was to get in touch with them to make time changes, for example. Although BetterHelp can't be there in emergencies, nor could any online provider, they have all kinds of information about what you can do in that special circumstance. And today, BetterHelp has a great savings offer for you. If you use the link trybetterhelp.com slash selfwork again, that's trybetterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash selfwork, you can enjoy a 10% discount on your first month of sessions. After five months of seeing how people relate to telehealth, I'd highly recommend it. If selfwork has helped you, maybe BetterHelp can give you an even more personal experience. With therapy. I just happened this week to be listening to an older episode of the podcast Invisibilia. They had a two part series two or three years ago on emotions, and since I was looking into emotional research, I decided to listen to it again. They talked about a word, legate, in a language that seemed to have no meaning in English. They interviewed two married anthropology researchers who traveled to a tribal group in the Philippines in order to study their language, and that's where they learned this word, Legut. At first, they thought it meant productivity, energy, because the tribal members would point to someone and go, Legut, Legut, when he asked, what are they feeling? But then, they saw it experienced as a much more threatening and painful feeling, one that even triggered in this particular tribe a need to kill which was somewhat frightening, but they didn't understand it. How could productivity and energy be the same as revenge or some sort of impulse to be violent? Tragically, after one of the researchers fell to her death, her husband began feeling and working his way through his grief. One day he found himself in the car with an intense moaning that brought about a sort of cathartic relief. And all of a sudden he realized he was experiencing Legut. And what he said in the interview was just as interesting. He said he didn't think he could have experienced that feeling if he hadn't seen the people in the tribe in the Philippines actually feeling it as well. It was being introduced to the concept of such a feeling that he found it himself. That discussion sparked my interest in the whole idea of having words for emotions, And I found the work of Dr. Tim Lomas of the University of East London. I found a BBC article, which he wrote, which you can find in the show notes. And it was so fascinating because he had a list of a whole bunch of words that described other feelings in other cultures that there's no English word for. I'm going to try to say three of them. Please, to any of you who are Japanese, Portuguese, or German, please forgive me for these pronunciations. But one's called Natsugashi, which is Japanese, a nostalgic longing for the past with happiness for the fond memory, yet sadness that it is no longer. It's called Natsugashi. In Portuguese, sod is a melancholic longing or nostalgia for a person, place, or thing that is far away either spatially or in time. A vague dreaming wistfulness for phenomena that may not even exist. We don't have an English word for Sodad. And then there's a German word called Zensuch. That's probably a horrible pronunciation. It's called life longings, an intense desire for alternative states and realizations about life, even if they are unattainable. We don't have that word, and thus can we even feel the emotion. I've studied French in college, and I remember the word ennui, and it didn't seem to me to have an equivalent in English. It's sort of a despairing emptiness, but it's more than that. Ennui. Anyway, Dr. Lomas says, and I quote, In our stream of consciousness, that wash of different sensations, feelings, and emotions, there's so much to process that a lot passes us by. He continues, the feelings we have learned to recognize and label are the ones we notice, but there's a lot more that we may not be aware of. And so I think if we are given those new words, they can help us articulate whole areas of experience we've only dimly noticed. Now here again is that synergy I was talking about in the intro. He bases his thoughts on the work of researcher Lisa Feldman Barrett, who was also mentioned in the Invisibilia podcast. So I was obviously supposed to find out about her work. It's just as fascinating. Rather than believing that there are specific places in our brains where emotions can be found, she believes it's the other way around. Emotions aren't universal, but are formed when your brain uses past experience to understand what's incoming sensory information. Then your brain uses that information, that creation of an emotion, to help predict and make sense of new sensory info, meaning what you smell, you touch, you taste, you see, and you hear. Your brain isn't pre-wired to feel these things. It learns emotions so it can make better choices. Now, I'm going to read her words, but again, I'm going to try to explain it in my own words. The actual article will be in the show notes as well. The question to her was, what does the classical view of emotion say? And she answers, it's the idea that a small select set of emotions are universal to human nature. The classical view maintains that the brain comes pre-wired with neurons dedicated to a specific emotion and that they're triggered by something that happens in the world, going off like a little bomb. The neurons, once triggered, produce a fingerprint that identifies the emotion, like a specific facial expression that is universally recognized. But in every era of scientific study, there's evidence that doesn't match this view. When I observe other people and myself, I realize that I don't have one distinct sadness, for example. I have an entire vocabulary of sadness. I don't have one happiness, one feeling of awe, or one feeling of gratitude. I have many. And they're highly specific to each situation. And she continues, again, if you're getting a little lost, like I did, I had to read this over like five times. (laughs) So hang in there. So Dr. Barrett continues, if you think about it from a brain standpoint, it's trapped in a dark, silent box called your skull and has no access to the causes of the sensations it receives. It only has the effects and it has to figure out what caused them. So how does it do this? There's one other thing it can use, and that's past experience. The idea is that your brain is constantly predicting what sensory inputs to expect and what action to take based on past experience. Then it uses the incoming input to either confirm its prediction or change it. It works this way for vision, hearing, taste, for every sense. I think the way emotions are made is not special. Your brain makes an emotion by using prior experiences of emotion to predict and explain incoming sensory inputs and then guide action. I'm reading this right now and remembering when my son was an infant and I would walk out of the room and he would start just bawling. But eventually he learned that when I walked out of the room, I came back. And so he didn't bawl. What he had learned, what his brain had learned, was that he didn't have to have the emotion of loss, which was the emotion that his brain came up with and learned at that point because he felt abandoned or, of course, that wasn't his word. He just knew I was gone. And then his brain learned, oh, she comes back. And it led to a different emotion. Now, that's a lot of information from Dr. Barrett, but let's come back to the whole suck it up phenomenon. What this research suggests strongly to me is that people who struggle to express emotion may not be able to do so because their brain has no prior experience of that emotion. Your brain doesn't know it exists, so for you, it doesn't. Here's another way I have of trying to understand this. My family had an incredible experience one night in Montreal, Canada, where we were lucky enough to be. The restaurant's name was Au Noir, and Noir is the French word for night. The restaurant itself has no light. You order before you enter, or you could decide to allow the chef to determine what you'll eat. And then the waitstaff, who are all legally blind, escort you to your table, and you are served dinner, not being able to see. It was fascinating how nerve-wracking it was, and I could hear others' nervousness as they talked too loud and them got really drunk as if talking too loud would somehow make you more secure. But with no sight to help you take in your experience, you had to rely on your other senses to help you make sense of what you were eating, where your food was, or even how to find your mouth. Believe it or not, that was hard. How to use a fork and a knife. Maybe that's kind of what Dr. Barrett is saying, that the brain doesn't know emotion. It doesn't have a place that suddenly turns on when certain sensory cues enter. There's no light that comes on. Your brain pieces together from past experience. For example, I knew from past experience the spoon is usually on the right and the water glass is as well. And then I was also gaining new information as I ate my meal in the dark. I began to understand and learn and make choices that would help me actually eat and not starve. The blind waiters had no problem, of course, because their past experience with that darkness was vast. I guess Helen Keller's well-known story is a whole other example of this. When you think about that scene in the movie when suddenly the patterns of touches on her hand from her teacher were finally associated with things in her world. Her brain turned on the emotion of knowing, of recognizing, of joy, of connection. And she could communicate. Her brain learned. So what does all this have to do with learning how to feel when you've sucked up your emotions for years. I'll repeat what Dr. Lomas said. And so I think if we are given these new words, they can help us articulate whole areas of experience we've only dimly noticed. Let me be quick to say, I'm just figuring this stuff out or trying to myself. I'll let you know more after I read Dr. Barrett's book. But as a therapist, it helps me understand what may have actually happened or not happened When an adult looks at me and says, I don't know how to feel X, Y, or Z, maybe they've only dimly noticed that emotion. They don't have a language for it. They don't have a word for it. So it becomes my job to help them find that language. As I pondered all this as I was writing, I think I kind of figured that out innately. Because when I have someone in front of me who struggles so to allow themselves to express emotion... What I found myself doing was watching for subtle signs that they're feeling something. Maybe it's a look out the window, a shift in their posture, a change in their eyes. And I'll ask them quickly what they're feeling. Often I get a, I don't know, but then I'll describe what I saw. Basically, I'm describing sensory information to them. And what I see in them and hear is the beginning of a recognition that some emotion shifted. Some emotion was dimly noticed, but wasn't defined enough to stick around. If we keep doing this, the emotion will become more and more defined. As the person begins to notice more and more, well, wait a minute, maybe when I look down, maybe when I look off, maybe when I start shaking my leg, I'm actually feeling something that I don't know what to call it, but it is something I want to try to understand. So, you know, on self-work, we always talk about what you can do about it. Here's your work. If you struggle to feel, first look for words that might give your feeling definition. You could even use a feelings chart. I'll leave a link for you in the show notes of what a feelings chart is or might look like. It's basically a list of feelings. So, you take that list and say that word and notice what your brain does. When you do, when you read the word, does it automatically go, I know exactly what that feeling is, and you can kind of feel it in that moment? You can remember the last time you felt it? Or do you say, I don't know what that is? Like the researcher who didn't know what Legut was until his wife tragically and suddenly died. It was just an intellectual concept to him. By the way, he described it in the discussion as a feeling of high voltage it felt like your whole being was highly energized and his was then in a painful direction because he was grieving. But if suddenly he understood if it was high voltage, that energy could also be in a positive direction as the tribe had tried to help him understand. So the first thing you do is try to find a word. Second, notice how your body responds to that word. What sensory information is your body sending your mind? You notice that all of a sudden your breathing gets deeper. You just take stock of what's going on in your senses. And then the third is to realize it takes practice and awareness and patience. Just sitting here reading this, I'm all of a sudden remembering a therapy session I had many, many, many years ago when a therapist called my mother manipulative And I got up and walked out of the session. I was very, very protective of my mom. And I couldn't stand the thought of the word manipulative describing her. But it was like a light went on. And I called the therapist back and said, you know what? You touched something in me that I didn't know was even there. And I need to come back and talk about it. My body gave me information about that word when I thought about my mom, that opened up a whole vista to me of how to think about my relationship with her. So the first step is finding words and thinking about words. The second is feeling words, seeing what sensory information your body gives you about certain words. And then the third is to realize all of this takes practice and awareness and patience. After all, if you've grown up not knowing what legget is, how can you possibly feel it? any of those other words I mentioned. I think what these researchers are also saying is that if you learn words and then allow yourself to feel these emotions, you don't suck it up anymore. Your whole life can begin to feel that you're more deeply connected to your emotions and to the many gifts those emotions bring. Good luck. I received this email this week from a listener, and I more than appreciated it, although it humbled me as well. She says, I've listened to your podcast for two of your four years. I've enjoyed your perspective, and I've shared your podcast with my clients more than once. I need to respectfully and professionally, as a peer, call to your attention to your statement about LCSWs and LPCs. You advised clients against seeing a social worker while admitting in the same sentence that you don't know how we are trained. In my sincere opinion, making an uninformed recommendation is poor practice and unhelpful to the vulnerable clients who seek our assistance, as it undermines the therapeutic relationship of your peers with their clients. You recommended a PhD therapist, but neglected to express understanding that this is an academic distinction, not a licensure distinction like LCSW, LPC, or LCP. For example, LCSW is the highest level of independent licensure in my state, regardless of master's or doctoral preparation. It is entirely fair that you would not have knowledge of the educational background of every type of therapist. However, informing your opinion before you make a broad statement is important for someone in public life. This was hard to read, but I actually so appreciated her doing this, and I wrote her back immediately saying I'd address this in my next podcast, and so I am. I have no excuse for making it sound as if only a PhD or a marriage and family therapist could understand the problem that the other listening in the last podcast was describing. Basically, as I remember the email, he was saying that both he and his wife identify with perfectly hidden depression, and he was asking what he and his wife should do. I fumbled around in my words, And then finally came up with saying that the therapist should be well-versed in trauma and family systems work. But I also said something about LCSWs and LPCs might not have that kind of training, and I didn't really know, and so I shouldn't have said it. I should have actually edited out those other comments, but if I remember correctly, I didn't listen to the email section of that particular podcast as I was in a hurry, and I hope that I would have caught it if I had, but I didn't, and those words are there. I'm going to look into taking them out now, but I didn't have time this week. But she was right, and actually she did professionally what exactly you're supposed to do. Peer to peer, you're supposed to say, hey, I think you've not acted in an ethical fashion. Let me make this clear. I've known lots of different therapists, and the letters after their name might indicate a special training in something. But their actual ability, it has nothing to do with those letters. I apologize that I made it sound as if it did. If I were going to make a statement as broad as that, I need to do my homework. And again, I thank the listener for writing and being as calm in her approach as she was. It was very helpful and, as I said before, very humbling. I do try and do my homework for self-work, and I more than appreciate the trust that's given to me by you listeners. Thank you for being here. You have my gratitude for listening to self-work, and thank you so much to those of you who've left reviews and ratings on especially Apple Podcasts, where most of you tune in. And also, there are lots of people who are reading the book and leaving reviews. They're not all five stars, that's for sure, but that's okay. Certainly, I want an honest review, an honest rating, and I appreciate the numbers growing because that at least indicates to people that you're reading the book and listening to self-work. The book I'm talking about is Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression, and we talk a lot in that book about revealing vulnerability, and I actually hope that this apology I've given is me revealing my own vulnerability to all of you. I want to model what I talk about. The book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can get it at your local bookstore, although you might have to order it, or you can order it directly from New Harbinger, the publisher. And I do think you get a little of a break when you do that. My website is com, and you can sign up there or subscribe there. It's a really easy way to keep up with my weekly blog posts and podcast, And you just get a weekly newsletter. That's it, a little message from me and then boom, you're done. I have a Facebook page. I'd love for you to follow me over there. That's Facebook.com slash DrMargaretRutherford and I put everything I do there as well as articles that I find or are sent to me that I think are really helpful. I'm over on Instagram at Dr. Margaret Rutherford as well. And I'm having fun doing a series called What I've Learned as a Therapist. Let me see, I'm on number 64 now. So I'm going up to 100. So I'm having fun doing that. Would love to have you on Instagram. And I do have a closed Facebook group at facebook.com groups selfwork self work. We're up to about 2400 people from all over the world. And I found it a very supportive and helpful place. Certainly not just because I'm there, but because there are a lot of people who are giving support and helping one another through hard times. Please stay safe and sane and take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.